Uh, we now uh, have a chance to look at Matthew chapter 18, uh, verses 15 through 20. So I invite you to turn with me there. You can find that on page number 979 of the Pew Bible. Just, what, six short verses, but they pack quite a punch, as you will see. Hear the word of the Lord. Jesus, continuing to teach his disciples, says this, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for your word. We're so thankful that you rule us by your word and by the power of your Holy Spirit. God, I pray that you would bring all of our hearts and minds into alignment with your word, that we might trust you even if it feels wrong to us, that we would be the kind of people who place your word in such authority over our lives that there is nothing else that we look to, not our feelings, not our culture, not academia, but to you and you alone through your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, so far in Matthew 18, Jesus has been very clear that sin is the path to hell, which is why he will judge anyone who causes or even tempts a professing Christian to sin. But... Because Jesus' grace and his mercy and his forgiveness is unending, as we saw last week, if a Christian does go astray by falling into sin or wrong belief, we are to go get them. We are to go get the sheep that has gone astray. And that's because every sin and blasphemy can be forgiven. Jesus taught us that back in Matthew chapter 12. And if the sheep who's gone astray will simply turn and put their trust in Jesus like a child, they will be welcomed back with open arms. So we're not supposed to despise Christians by leading them into sin, which is what we learned two weeks ago. Nor are we to despise them by letting them continue 
and sin, which is what we learned last week, which all sounds really great on paper. But in real life, as we all know, it's quite a bit more complex because we all sin. There's actually an infinite number of ways that we can sin against each other. All it takes is one careless word, one flash of anger. And not only have we sinned against someone, but we've tempted them to sin. We've done exactly what Jesus told us not to do. They're tempted to be bitter and angry towards us because of our words. They'll be tempted to gossip about us because of what we said and did. I mean, you, we all know how this goes, right? We, we all know how one little sin leads to another, which leads to another, which leads to another. And so in our passage today, Jesus is going to teach us how to live in community with each other. Since we will always be sinning against each other, Jesus wants us to remember and to be able to remind each other that anyone who turns to him and trusts him like a child belongs in the kingdom of heaven. He's going to teach us how to bring back lost sheep who've gone astray. Because when they return, we receive them back as if we're receiving Christ himself. This is the church discipline passage. If we all went to the Google and typed in church discipline, Matthew 18, chapter, or verses 15 through 20 would pop up probably first. And I hesitate to use the words church discipline because I know those words can be filled with a lot of baggage. It's possible that you're here this morning and maybe you've never heard the words church discipline before, but it's also possible that you're here this morning and you associate church discipline with harsh judgmentalism. But this morning, we will not be able to avoid using those words. But before we jump into our text, what I'd like to do is I'd actually like to point out how the apostles hear Jesus' teaching in verses 18, or chapter 18, verses 15 through 20. Okay? So right after this passage, this is how Peter responds. We're told, Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. So what Peter hears is not condemnation. Peter hears restoration. And so Peter asks him, so do I have to restore him, what, seven times? I mean, that's a lot, Jesus. And Jesus says, no, no, 77 times, Peter. Which doesn't mean on the 78th time, then we cut him off. No, what Jesus is saying is, no, no, no. This is what it's like to live in community with other Christians, is that you will be forgiving each other infinitely. And all they need to do is repent. And trust in Jesus like a child. So again, this passage is not about condemnation, it's about restoration. And here's our outline for this morning. First, we'll look at the process of discipline. And then we'll look at the purpose of discipline. And then finally, the promise of discipline. 
So as we look at the process of church discipline this morning, we must keep in mind what we've learned. That there are two ways we can despise a fellow Christian, by leading them into sin and by letting them continue in their sin. And if we're bold enough to go and tell a sinner their fault, like Jesus is about to teach us that we must do, but we do it with an overbearing authority, we do it with judgmentalism, we do it wagging our finger at them hypocritically as if somehow we're better than them, well, guess what that's going to do? That's going to lead them further into sin. Being proud and self-righteous like that is one of the easiest ways to cause or tempt someone else to sin. And I know one of the reasons we hesitate to practice church discipline is because many of you remember times when people sinned and were repentant and should have been welcomed back and restored, but instead they were brought to the front of the church and shamed. We don't want to do that. But at the same time, we must go after lost sheep. We can't just let them go astray. We can't let our fear that we will seem judgmental or hypocritical keep us from going after them either. And so I wonder if we feel paralyzed by this. On one hand, we know that if I go after them, oh man, I'm going to seem like a big judgy McJudgerson. But if I don't go after them, well, then what's going to happen? It feels like we should do something, but we know that we're sinners too. We don't want to push someone away. And so we just sort of end up not doing anything. We're paralyzed, we feel helpless and powerless, and then as time goes by, we sit there and watch our fellow Christians, our loved ones, fall farther and farther into sin and destroy their lives, and we don't know what to do because it feels like if we say anything, we're being judgmental, and it feels like if we don't say anything, What do we do? And so this morning, friends, Jesus is giving us hope. He's giving us hope. He's going to tell us how we can go and find his lost sheep. And it's not going to feel uncomfortable. Or sorry, it is going to feel uncomfortable. But these are the words of Jesus for a paralyzed church about how to love and restore straying sheep. He begins with these words, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Notice Jesus is talking about when another Christian sins against you. The beginning of this process, it's private. It's personal. It's small with no one else involved. It's between you and him alone. This means we should not be gossiping to one another about this situation. It also means we, we can't just write them off as if somehow they've sinned the unforgivable sin and it's just 
Not worth going after them. They, they get what they deserve, that guy. No, we must go to him and tell him his fault, but just between us. Jesus, Jesus limits this to when someone sins against us because we're not supposed to be the sin police. We're not supposed to go around as the judge, jury, and executioner of every Christian we think might have sinned. But we are supposed to deal with sin when someone sins against us. We are called to go after them because we love them. And so we go and tell him his fault. This word means to expose, to reprove, or to convict. That's what Jesus is commanding us to do. And this is hard. Some of us are tempted to be soft with someone, so soft that we might as well be approving of their sin. And then others of us are tempted to be so hard with somebody that we are harsh in condemning with them. And, and I and you and I all know that that line in between, oh, that's a very small line. However, Jesus knows that. And yet, here our Lord commands us to simply go anyway and to tell him his fault. So we go prayerfully, we go with humility, we go by first taking the log out of our own eye so that we can see clearly to remove the speck in their eye. Our desire is for him to hear us and to see what he's done and to repent and turn to Christ like a child. And to be honest, this should be 99% of what qualifies as church discipline in the life of a church. Jesus expects us to love each other enough to say something. He expects the one who sinned to be convicted by it and repent. And then he expects us to forgive and to receive him back up to 77 times no matter what he's done, which we'll talk about how crazy that is next week. This is what it will look like for a church to take both holiness and forgiveness as seriously as Jesus does. And when that happens, we've gained our brother, or literally, we've won our brother. That word is translated elsewhere in the New Testament to describe conversion. We've won them to Christ. He's back in the fold, he's restored to the church. And ideally, because we haven't gossiped about it, no one even knows he was gone. However, we all know there are certain situations, there are certain sins, where this is much harder. If your spouse is sinning against you by looking at pornography, And you know it. If they're spending more money than you bring in every month, or neglecting their duties as a wife or a husband, or they're enslaved to alcohol or drugs, maybe they've stopped coming to church. 
Or maybe they're believing false doctrine. That's where things get really difficult, right? We all know that when someone gets into a sin like that, it's a lot harder for them to walk away from it. It's a lot easier for them to get defensive and then to deny, deflect, and manipulate. It gets a lot trickier to even say anything. Because those kinds of sins get their grip into us. And I wonder, I wonder if we practice the first step more often and more boldly, full of love and grace, that we might actually prevent our loved ones from drifting this far. But what if it's not our spouse? What if they're not sinning directly against us? Does this mean we're off the hook, Jesus? Does this mean I don't have to say anything? I can kind of do what I already sort of want to do in my own flesh, and friends, I'm saying this because this is me too, right? And the answer is no, we will still need to say something. If for some reason we are the only one who knows about that sin, let's say it's uh, our friend at school or a relative or our own child, then in a broad sense, as a fellow believer, they are sinning against us. Because they're sinning against the body of Christ, for which we are a member. But at the same time, we want to be wise. We, we know how easy it is to get sucked into sin by someone ourselves, especially a friend or a relative. And so in that case, it might be best to tell someone more mature, like a pastor or an elder. Here's what Paul says in Galatians 6.1. He says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should go, or sorry, should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. You see, when we know about a sin that's not specifically against us, it is the special call of those who are mature in the church to go and restore that person. And so at the very least, we should come and talk to an elder and a pastor to help us sort out how we should proceed. Okay, so what if, as many of us fear, we do muster the courage to go and to approach someone we love, to tell him his fault. And what if they say, well, I'm not doing anything wrong? Okay? Well, what if they say, you don't understand, man. I know she's not my wife, but I love her. She's my soulmate. I've never connected with anyone like this before in my life. If, if you understood, if you understood how hard it's been to be married to her, and now I've found someone, God wants me to be happy. Okay? I, I don't have a drinking problem. What, what are you talking about? That's how he responds, Jesus says. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So remember, this process is private. It's personal. Jesus is clearly keeping the circle small. 
We are not to broadcast this to anyone, but if necessary, we are to bring one or two others along with us, he says, so that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So with that last line, Jesus is quoting the Old Testament law. And the the law there is in the context of uh, a judicial situation with a judge. Now, church discipline is is not the same as uh, as a judicial context like that. But, but there's a principle that Jesus is capturing that is the same. See, if I believe you sinned against me, what if I'm wrong? What if I can't prove my case, for lack of a better term? What if I am being overbearing, judgmental, and hypocritical? Well, then I need to know that. And so if I can't even establish the charge for these witnesses, well, then this process is over and it needs to be. I'm the one who needs to repent, right? So this is Jesus' way of protecting that person against a false accusation. But if our brother is in sin, if he is refusing to turn to Christ and trust him like a child, the beautiful part of bringing one or two others along with us is it allows him to see two or three other humble, tear-filled, sad, perplexed, terrified, anxious, not wanting to be paralyzed anymore, Christians who love him enough to come after him, who are willing to say, this is the path to hell, and we love you too much to let you go down this path without a fight. The impact of bringing one or two others along with us is not so that we have more ammunition to condemn the man, but so that he can hear the voice of another Christian confirming that what he's doing is sin and calling him to turn away from his sin and turn back to Christ like a child. Then if he doesn't, these witnesses, they become witnesses to the fact that he will not repent. If one person tells us we're wrong, it's a lot easier to explain that away. But if two or three people are looking us in the eye and telling us that we've gone astray, that packs a much bigger punch. And that's why Jesus tells us this is the way to approach that situation. Okay, that takes us to our second point this morning, which is the purpose of discipline. I've already mentioned that the goal of this process is not condemnation, it's restoration. And I want to drill a little farther into that right now. So if we follow Jesus' thought process through this chapter, he's just done, got done telling us how important it is for us to go after a lost sheep who's gone astray. And then the very next thing he does is he goes into this process of church discipline, which tells us exactly how to go after the person who's gone astray. Because the goal of church discipline is to help this lost sheep come home to keep her from falling deeper into sin and destroying her life. Because the life of joy and flourishing is a life united to Christ in obedience to God's commands. And so it's not just their eternal soul we're fighting for. We're fighting to keep them from destroying their life now, knowing there are real consequences in the here and now the longer someone goes astray. Not to mention how this tarnishes the glory of God and the name of Christ and the purity of the church. I believe, friends, that in the last 50 years in our country, 
because we've not practiced this process with boldness, the name of Christ has become distasteful to the watching world because we look like hypocrites, because we are. We're not willing to say, this, this man is not among us. And because we're not willing to draw that line if it came to it, the world thinks that he's part of us. That's why Jesus goes on to say, if he refuses to listen to the witnesses, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. You see, the idea of bringing one or two witnesses is so that she will listen. The reason we tell it to the church now is so that she will listen. Jesus is encouraging us to use the strength and the unified voice of the Christian community now to help this lost sheep see the truth. But Jesus says if she still refuses to listen, even to the church, which means if she would rather remain in her sin, even though she knows the verdict of God, amplified by the voice of the church, then we are to let her be to us as a Gentile or a tax collector. Now there is some a debate about what it means to consider this person a Gentile and a tax collector. And so Gentiles, as many of you know, are just anybody who's not a Jew. And Jews uh, shunned and ignored tax, or Gentiles. In fact, Jews considered Gentiles unclean, and they wouldn't even go into a Gentile's house or invite one into theirs. Tax collectors were traitors. They were Jews who got rich off collecting taxes from their own people for the Romans. The Jews thought no one was more worthy of being shunned and ignored than a tax collector. But Jesus ate with tax collectors and Gentiles. Matthew, who's writing this gospel, was once a tax collector himself. Surely, surely, Jesus is not commending us to treat Gentiles, to treat this person like the Jews treated Gentiles and tax collectors. But there is one thing about Gentiles and tax collectors that everyone could agree on at that time, even Jesus. And that was the fact that Gentiles and tax collectors are not a member of the flock of God. Jesus isn't saying shun and ignore this brother who refuses to listen even to the church. He's saying that just like a Gentile and a tax collector, we are to consider him an unbeliever. If you were here with us last week, uh, you remember this picture that I put on the screen with the two concentric circles. What Jesus is saying is that we should now consider this person on the outside of the covenant community. Which is why in the very next verse he says this, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So we came across this statement back in chapter 16. And if you remember, Jesus told the disciples he was giving them the keys of the kingdom and that what he meant and that what it meant to have the keys of the kingdom was that whatever they bound on earth would be bound in heaven and that whatever they loosed on earth would be loosed in heaven. And these, this is a phrase that was used by the rabbis. And to bind something meant to forbid it and to loose something meant to permit it. 
And here again, Jesus is giving authority to the leaders of the church, this time through the use of church discipline, to let someone know that their lack of repentance means they are outside of the kingdom of heaven, as far as we know. All sinners are welcome in the front door of the church as we preach the gospel of the free grace of God that anyone who repents and believes may enter the kingdom of heaven. And then church discipline is sort of like the back door of the church. Church discipline is a way of continuing to preach the gospel. And what we're saying is that anyone who repents and believes remains in the kingdom of heaven. They are loosed. They are permitted in the kingdom of heaven. But anyone who refuses to repent and believe is no better off than a Gentile or a tax collector. They are bound. They are forbidden from the kingdom of heaven. And this is the most severe news we could ever look somebody in the eye and tell them. And notice, it's not their sin that places them on the outside of the kingdom, which is very comforting to the rest of us who are struggling with sin every single day. No, it's the fact that they simply won't acknowledge it as sin and turn from it back to Christ like a child. There's nothing anyone can do to sin their way out of the kingdom except to repent and turn to Jesus like a child. Except to not repent and turn to Jesus like a child. So I've said it before and I'll say it again. This process is not meant for condemnation. It's meant for restoration. If we lean into what Jesus is calling us to do here, as difficult as it is, as much ice water as it puts into our veins, there's hope. There's hope here. There's no hope anywhere else. There's no hope. And I believe many of you have watched loved ones walk away from the church and you felt helpless and paralyzed. And as hard as this seems to do, this seems to be, there's hope here. And the reason there's hope here is because these are the words of Jesus. And even this final piece or we tell them we can no longer affirm that they are a believer, even that is meant to restore them. Right? It's like we start out by saying, hey man, you need some ibuprofen, you got a headache. Right? Then it's like, oh no, you got a really bad headache. Well, drink, drink more water, you know, go to the doctor, figure what's out, and then you realize, well, you got brain cancer. Well, let's shock you with some chemo or whatever it is, Right? That's what this third step is. It's it's the shock to the system. It's what it's meant to do, just like chemo is meant to, to save someone. This is why Jesus gives church leaders the keys of the kingdom. He knows we are prone to fall under the weight of this. He knows we are filled with fear and trembling at the thought of this. And so he tells us, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. He's giving the church his blessing and confidence to follow through with the hope of restoration. Listen to question and answer 85 of the Heidelberg Catechism. 
incidentally, I would like to know if this is too small for these screens. I, I wanted to fit it all on one slide, and I thought, I always make it big. I'll make it small today, but if it's too small, please let me know. So the question is, how is the kingdom of heaven closed and opened by Christian discipline? And here's the answer. According to the command of Christ, those who, though called Christians, profess unchristian teachings or live unchristian lives, and who, have, who after repeated personal and loving admonitions, refuse to abandon their errors and evil ways, and who after being reported to the church, that is, to those ordained by the church for that purpose, fail to respond also to the church's admonitions, such persons the church excludes from the Christian community by withholding the sacraments from them. And God also excludes them from the kingdom of Christ. But then, here's why, right? Such persons, when promising and demonstrating genuine reform, are received again as members of Christ and His church. So notice that according to the Heidelberg Catechism, the most severe thing that we can do is withhold the Lord's Supper from someone. Because the Lord's Supper is for believers. And because of the evidence of their unchristian lives, their errors and their evil ways, we don't know any longer if they are a believer. And we love them too much to allow them to eat and drink judgment on themselves, which is what Paul says will happen in 1 Corinthians 11. And we love them too much to let them go on thinking of themselves as someone who has true faith. They, the most loving thing for them to hear, for them to know is that they are on the outside. Because the only way they can be restored is if they realize their condition. And we must love their eternal soul more than we love our relationship with them. If your heart works like mine, I am sure one of the reasons we are not willing to be so bold is because we know that to say anything could cost us our relationship with someone we deeply love. And so we reason with ourselves, we tell ourselves, what's well, better to stay connected with them than to, than to go and tell them their fault? But at this point in the process, Jesus is calling us and commanding us to love them so much that we want them to know that as far as we can tell, they are on the outside of the kingdom. We tell this to them with the hope that it will finally bring them to a place where they repent of their sins so that they can turn again to Christ like a child. This is what Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 5. 1 Corinthians 5, there's a man who is having an adulterous relationship with his stepmother. And this is what Paul says to the church in Corinth. He says, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, and here's why, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Now this sounds harsh and judgmental to us. And that's because it's hard to hear anything but the fact that Paul is telling the church to hand this man over to Satan, which sounds terrible. 
But we can't ignore the second half of the verse. We are to do this so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Paul wants this man to know that his sin has put him on the path to hell. And the very best way to love this man is for him to know that that's the road he's on. That if he does not turn to Jesus like a child, he's no better off than a Gentile or a tax collector. But if he does, he will be forgiven and received back. Which takes us to our final point, the promise of discipline. So what if it all goes wrong? What if somebody... I mean, I, you, I mean, you read this text, and it says what it says, right? I, I've done nothing today but unpack what this text is saying, right? So let's say we get to the point where we look at this text, and we're like, okay, Jesus, you're my Lord, even though this doesn't feel right or seem right to me. I've got no hope otherwise, so I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move forward. Well, we're big sinners, right? Remember we talked about that, that, that line between, uh, you know, causing them to sin or letting them go astray and how that line is so thin in the middle. Well, guess what we're probably going to do as we do this? We're, we're going to be on one side of that line or the other. It's going to be imperfect. So let's say we're convinced that we ought to do this and now we move forward doing it. And it all falls apart. People take sides. It's real ugly. That could definitely happen. But let me ask us this. Is that a reason not to do it? Is that a reason not to do this? Because the only other alternative is to sit back helpless and powerless and paralyzed and watch people we love destroy their lives and the lives of other people and potentially die apart from Christ. And I know there's stories where, where God, where we don't do anything and God brings somebody back. I, I do know there's that story, but that, that's God's amazing grace. The other alternative is to trust what Jesus is saying here. To lean into the scriptures in faith, putting Jesus' wisdom above our own. And maybe, this is my hope and my prayer as I, with fear and trembling, read these verses, maybe we'll get to see a miracle. Maybe instead of the train wreck we fear, maybe we will get to see a lost sheep return to the fold. So in my own life, I, was, uh, I started following Christ when I was 24. And when uh, I first started following Christ, I was high on Jesus. Couldn't read the Bible enough. I was going to everything the church offered. About 16, or six months into that, kind of lost a little steam. Stopped reading my Bible. About eight months into it, I started hanging out again with my old friends. And about 10 months into it, I'd resigned myself to the fact that this is just who I am. And God made me this way, and I can't change And my college pastor, there was a night 
where he met me at Denny's in Turlock at 12 o'clock at night. He stayed with me until 3 o'clock in the morning, pleading with me. And I wouldn't budge. I would not budge. I would not listen. But let me tell you what was going on in my heart. I knew he loved me. I knew he was loving me. But I just didn't know how to overcome my sin. In my mind, I, I tried for like 10 months and I just couldn't do it. So I was at a loss. I was at a loss. But what he did by coming to me, because the Holy Spirit was alive inside me, is his voice amplified the voice of the Holy Spirit in me. I was wrecked the next day, and the next day, and the next day. And even though it didn't have to go to the next step of the process where he brought two or three others along, just by him doing that, it so altered my trajectory that I made a few choices after that that led me to a, a camp that I went to. I didn't want to go to, but I got stuck going to, and that's another long story. And so I just want to encourage us that as terrifying as this is, it, it works. And, and it's what Jesus is clearly commanding us to do. And yes, if I had not have listened, right, and I had, and I had fallen away, I'm sure that would have been so painful on this man. But I think it would have been even more painful on him if he had not come to me. And he had the doubt that, that maybe he could have done something and that he didn't. So this is why Jesus finishes with these words. He says, again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Now, how many times have you heard this verse quoted in prayer where somebody says, God, you say that whenever two or three are gathered, you are there with us. And that is true. When two or three are gathered, God is with us. But, but guess who he's also with when we're alone? He's with us. Having two or three people together doesn't make God more present. This is a much-needed promise given in the context of church discipline to a church that needs to know when they do something as difficult as church discipline that Jesus is with them. Jesus says this right after telling the church that there might come a time when they will have to bind someone from the kingdom of heaven by telling them their failure to repent of their sins places them on the outside of the kingdom looking in. They might have to hand someone over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh and the hope that his soul will be saved on the day of the Lord. And no one can make that decision on their own. So when the pastors and the elders of the church gather to make a decision like that, as terrifying and difficult as that decision will be, Jesus wants them to know that if they're asking God for wisdom and guidance and resolve to make a decision like that and strength to follow through with it out of love for the sheep who has gone astray, if they agree on earth and ask God together anything about this, 
Jesus is comforting them. He's letting them know they can rest. Knowing God is working through this situation from heaven for them and for that person. This is a wonderful promise. And they can know that as difficult as it is, as heart-wrenching as it is, as much conflict and difficulty that it could create, that Jesus is with them in it, because they have not made the decision to do this by themselves, because they've exercised the keys of the kingdom which God has given to them. You see, the promise of church discipline is not that the results will be what we hope they will be. The promise is that God is working from heaven through the process and that Jesus is with us in the process. And nothing could be more comforting than that, regardless of the outcome. Let's pray. Father, we all know that this has been a profound sermon. God, help us Help us to embrace your grace and mercy in our own lives if we have regret. Help us to have boldness for the future with hope of restoration. Help us to trust that this is how our Lord calls us to love one another. Help us to shake off the cultural goggles and ears that we all are prone to hear this kind of teaching through. And give us great confidence, God, that your word is more true than what we think or what we feel. Help us to remember that there is no sin or blasphemy that cannot be forgiven. We thank you and we pray this in Jesus' name.